Where got moved? My Van Helsing. What is Van Helsing? He's the uh, uh, hero in the Dracula novels. Yeah, that's what I thought. He's not. What are you doing with those? <laughs> those are my. Those are I, my uh, remind remind me who I want to be like. What heroes I want to be like. So I got Dumbledore, Van Helsing, and Hellboy. Those are weird heroes, Jason. <laughs> I, I only thing I know about Van Helsing was like he was a vampire hunter, right? He's a vampire hunter, right? But he was like the perfectly balanced hero. So he knew his Bible. He knew all of the folklore and traditions. Um, and he knew the science of the day. And so he was able to balance all of those things. And that's how he was able to catch the vampires. Because the vampires were the complete imbalance uh, of humanity. And so he... So you had to have the perfectly balanced hero to be able to catch and destroy them. You know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, it seems when I, I've gone back and kind of watched some old shows, um, even vampire shows, and it seems a, that um, the if you go find – I'm trying to think of a couple shows. Uh, shoot, Vampire Hunter, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, that's one show. The other one was The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, it seems that almost all the bad guys have a very great understanding of history in the past, and they're always shoot. Um, what's the um, oh, um, I see it in my head, Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Like, they all had this great understanding in history of the past and how to bring back or uh, bring in this new world order, this new demonic power and force, and everybody's always catching up to them in information historically, right? Like All the good guys are like one step behind in historical understanding of the world, and the bad yeah. guys are always a step ahead in it. And it's like, this kind of feels like where we're at right now. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So when, you, when you say that, it makes sense that somebody like that is interesting. I'm trying to find... I wouldn't have thought Fan Helsing. That's not somebody I I have on my shelf to read. So it's kind of weird. Okay. My dog just jumped into my lap out of nowhere. It needs some love. Okay, I'm trying to find... (sighs) Jason, this is going to be a weird day. It's because I'm not... I'm feeling some type of way. Yesterday, (laughs) I just just tell you where I'm at right now. So... um, well, I'm looking for this. Yesterday, we had on Jared and um, Rod Martin from, talking about SBC politics. Oh, yeah. Um, and everything that we basically saw in 2019 has come true. So in 2019, in June, they had this sexual abuse panel at the SBC with Rachel Den Hollander on it. Beth Moore, Russell Moore, uh, J.D. Greer, who was the president at the time, and they were making some outrageous claims of how to deal with some of the stuff going on in in the SBC. Now, just so you know, I I don't know if you know this, but the SBC, there was some sort of news story that dropped at that time that says something like in 20 years of the SBC, there's been 700 cases of sexual abuse. 
I think half of those cases were dealt with judiciously and, and ran the other half never came up to that particular. Um, they never boiled over uh, to that, to, to, to legal to level where they got dealt with. Yeah. Legally. And, and so, um, oh, I found it. I'm looking dead at it and it's right in front of me. Okay. Um, and so because of that, that particular situation in stat, which by the way is outlandish, uh, um, to be able to flip the SBC or to get, uh, some sort of program in the SBC when they've actually done really, really well in comparison to government schools. Church. Yeah. Well, oh yeah, even yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Or, but, or yeah, or government schools or what? How many SBC churches are there? I believe there's forty thousand SBC churches. Or fit is it fifteen thousand? Forty thousand members. Wait, let me check. Uh, there are, as of 2018, there are 47,456 Southern Baptist churches across 41 state conventions. This is according to Pew Research. Okay. So, I want, so let's look at real quick, how many government schools are there? Right. There are 97,568 public schools. So close to a hundred thousand public schools. And so, so it's roughly half. So there's, and in government schools, I think, what was it? The sets that was said by Rod Martin was something like 15,000 sexual abuse cases every well, year. I, I mean, I'm, it's one and a half percent that, of churches have had one case of sexual abuse, which means if 0.75% of churches have had one sexual abuse case that wasn't dealt with well, that's a pretty good statistic considering the age that they're living in went you know lived through some of the mm. so that that actually should be encouraging you should look at that and say like okay let's double down let's i mean that's sad that it that it's even half a percent sure we don't even want that we don't even want that so let's set good practices in place but that shouldn't be enough to sway but wouldn't that but wouldn't that be a a testament to the fact that we do have good practices in place because we have such a low rate in comparison to now, not saying we can't get better. We can always get better. We want right. it. We want to get that down to zero. But um, in comparison to government schools where people are still sending their kids, you know, you should say, how do we get the government schools to look more like the SBC? <laughs> right. It should be the complete opposite way around. Right. The SBC is, we should say the SBC has the same people that are going here and going there that are interacting and the SBC or churches seem to do a way better job of dealing with sin than government schools do. So how do we go and ask the church, what are you guys doing to be able to deal with sin that 
it is eliminating it and driving it out. So over 20 years, you only had 700 cases over 20 right. years. Let's say that all of those cases were the worst cases you can possibly have over 20 years. Right. I, yeah, because that's point zero 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 eight a year per church. Okay, so this is why I'm in some type of way right now. When we were at the conference, Southern Baptist Convention in 2019, I remember watching this pedal go down and I'm saying, wait a second, this isn't even a flashpoint. Like This isn't an issue. This is not a problem that we need to have such a huge um, attention brought to it. The churches really are doing a great job of trying to deal with sin and there's nothing wrong with encouraging them to say, Hey guys, this is becoming an issue in the world. Um, and we see the me too movement and other movements using sexual abuse in order to get their way inside of their institutions. We want to make sure hey, that the church does not get played like this. So guys keep a watch on your flock. Okay. Keep a watch on yeah. your flock, do a good job of managing flock. your flock. Be more diligent because this is where the devil's trying to get in. Don't let them in. Okay. Give if that so, warning. If something comes up, if something comes up, here are the justice. Here's how to properly do justice in that situation. You know, that sort of thing. And that, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. All of a sudden we start seeing different sorts of institutions popping up to remove pastors in one way or another from the ability or and elders from the ability to be able to deal with these issues. So Matt Chandler um, had something going in his church. They didn't know about it. They found out about it. It was at a camp and he followed all. There's a video I put together between what Rachel Den Hollander said that he should have done and what he actually did. And he followed everything to the T and she still judged him harshly for it. Fought everything to the T so all the, the churches have decided to delegate a lot of this information, a lot of this, the judgments and some of the ways to deal with this outside of themselves to other institutions to help them figure out how to work as a church. Okay. Meaning, uh, but not to, not like to the civil magistrate, if there was a crime, like a parachurch organization, is that what you mean? Yeah. A parachurch organization that would tell them, it's almost, to be honest with you, I know what they say it's there to do, but it's almost like helping make sure that the church doesn't incur guilt here. Right. Did you call this person when you should have? Oh, you shouldn't have told the the victim about this and you shouldn't tell the perpetrator that he's been accused here. You know, like here's how you navigate the situation, you know. Uh, when do you call the police? All the, it's everything. It's all the when when you when you know biblical justice, these are things you don't need a hand for, right? Now it'd be different if these institutions were t were coming in with the law of God and saying, "What does the law of God require us to do in these situations as the church?" Right? Yeah. So what are so we anyway, to do? what are we not allowed yeah, to do? Exactly. Biblically, what is our stance there? And so. Um, one of these groups have been created to help kind of um, almost remove the authority of the church in one way or another from being able to operate. There's a lot to say on that. Nevertheless, the whole point is this. In 2019, we saw this wave coming. We saw it kind of developing. And 
So when I made the trailer with Founders, it was to try and avoid the kind of battle that Southern Baptist Convention is currently in, right? And the only reason that I know that it was that big was because the trailer had a fallout that was that big. Right. The fallout of what the image of Den Hollander and the, what was being said about the movement that she was bringing in, that was enough in a second two or five to make the whole Southern Baptist Convention have to come out with a statement in one way or another about the whole issue. Skip ahead to now. Now you have guideposts, which supports LGBTQIA plus stuff, giving information and suggesting to the executive committee how to deal with certain issues. And they have a hotline set up for sexual abuse stuff. It's just they've gutted out they've gutted out the executive committee from what it was by uh removing client uh, uh what do they call it um lawyer client privileges for the executive committee saying there were sex abuses in the executive committee all kind it just it the sexual abuse thing came in and because people wanted to be righteous i think rightly so but they felt guilty got played to to completely remove certain um foundational pieces of the SBC to be manipulated by guideposts yeah. right? and create and create guideposts as an institution basically inside of the SBC now. And so it's come out recently that the executive committee had, I think an operating budget of 11, $12 million and whatever guidepost has done in a short amount of time, I think since the last convention uh, that they've been in place, there's $12 million into that reserve or $6 million into that reserve. Sorry. So it's cut in half in just this short time. Six million dollars has gone to guideposts. A large, if not six million, a large chunk of that. I think this has been large some investigation stuff, but a, a large chunk of that has okay. gone. In. So I bring this up to say, so I was feeling some type of way because I'm thinking, man, if you don't make a scene at the first crime scene, like, how do you get guideposts out of there now? You have a secular organization that seeks to support LGBTQ initiatives and ideas getting tithe money in order to help give recommendations to your Christian leaders on how to deal with sexual abuse issues and cases. I mean, it sounds like a first Corinthians seven issue. We don't take, our business in front of secular judges, secular, you know, in front of the, we don't sue one another, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Because the, um, we, you know, our internal business, we deal with internally. Now, if there's a crime committed, then God tells us that we're supposed to deal with the civil magistrate, right? The, the church doesn't have the ability to, punish criminals or crimes for crimes, but um, advising, you know, the, Hey, we're having this problem. We need to get, we need somebody to come in and help us deal with it. You don't go to non, you don't go to a non-Christian institution for that. So 
Man, it's, 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 it really it's really bothered me because I felt like we could have did a lot more. Um, we we got played, and yeah, it happened. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm I'm feeling touchy about some. I'm feeling pretty sensitive about a few things, and I shouldn't, but it's making me examine everything a little different now, knowing that 2019, while everybody was giving a full on assault against founders against. Me, I wasn't taking as much heat as founders. They were taking heat and they were protecting me in one sense. Um, but if what, and, and now everybody sees the play before people didn't want to say, Oh my goodness, Rachel Denholler is at the foot of this thing. She's got her own, she's helping guide a lot of what's happening here, right? She's the poster girl for this. And so people are seeing it now and where they weren't willing to call out and say, yeah, she was a, she was, she's a problem then. Back then, everybody's like, how could you put her? She's a sexual abuse victim. How could you put her inside of your trailer? Shame on you. Now everybody's like, wait a second. We got a warning. Yeah. She was like, <laughs> well, it's, she sounds like the perfect tip of the, uh, tip of the spear, so to speak. Um, because, because we've bought into the victimhood gives us privileges. Power. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it, that's ex- actually, you know what? You're, you're exactly right. And so because I'm sensitive now to say, man, if we would have put up a fight right then and there and said, nope, nobody would know if we would have put up that fight, what kind of fallout that this would have had. But if we know that this is a fight and this is important and we would have put it up then, I wonder how different things would look inside the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee and the fight that they would be having if we would have made that film then, right? And I think it would be looking a lot different because when you expose the light, you you might not kill roaches, but they run to different places, right? Right. right. <laughs> and so it might not it might not be this fight, but it would be a different fight. But I don't. This is. Let me just say it like this. So now I'm looking at all this other stuff. And I'm saying, where are the fights at now that three to five years from now we do we do not want to be fighting? Yeah. <laughs> like, where's the where's the potential crime scene at now that if we don't fight here, we're gonna be in a massive mess. And well the the SBC is interesting because you know, I've never been a Baptist, love my Baptist brethren. We've got our. Do you really, Jason? Do you really? We've we got know our what you say disagreements. About We've had our disagreements, <laughs> maybe you might say. Um, but I'm really grateful. For, you know, the, those guys at Founders are doing. They're doing the whole, you know, ecumenical church a huge service yes. in their fight, and we're grateful for them. And but the SBC has the reason that. Um, the reason that the guilt manipulation works over there is because um, the reason they lasted longer than the other mainline denominations and the, but that guilt manipulation turns out to be the thing that works against them is because they've got that anti-intellectual streak in them, which was a huge benefit when the universities and seminaries and everything went left 
<coughs> and said, if you want to retain your academic respectability, then you need to come with us. And the SBC was like, screw academic respectability. We want Jesus. And they're absolutely right, you know, to the, that streak of um, anti-intellectual-ism as an, as an ism protected them when they were right to say to the rest of the church, hey, guys, screw academic respectability. They're, they're leaving the scriptures behind. Right? So they survived a lot of that early modernist push by, by taking Jesus rather than academic respectability. And we could have learned from them. Uh, at, at, and, and a lot of Presbyterians did, you know, uh, J. Gresham Machen uh, happily joined arms with revivalist Baptists to work on the fundamentalist papers because he was like, no, you're right. We want Jesus over academic respectability. Um, but now the guilt manipulation works because they have, um, because they, they have had that, um, that, that whole kind of the the holiness uh it's been called a bunch of different things holiness movement you know but the that push for separatist um the, the separatist view of holiness or separationist is probably a better way to put it view of holiness which leaves us which leaves you open for being manipulated because the guilt is always right on the, right on the, the edges of things, right? When we think you become holy by pulling back, um, then, you know, by holy holiness, by avoidance, you're always going to be susceptible to guilt manipulation rather than we become holy by pressing into Christ, Right. Our holiness is from Christ, period. We don't provide anything to our holiness. Um, you know, we, there are things we avoid because we are holy, but it doesn't make us holy to avoid things. Right? The the whole we we hold back from sexual immorality because Christ has set us apart by His work on the cross and in, and the Spirit's work in the resurrection and then the Spirit's work within us and within the, you know, the institutional, it was an individual and institutional regeneration, you know, um, covenant keeping is because we are holy, not so that we become holy. Right. Mm. So um, I think that is the, um, that's the temptation that comes along with the strength that the SBC has the, the way, the reason they survived the modernist push um, or we're, we're able to hold back for so long against the modernist push um, turned out to have a, a, a weakness that they fi- that was finally exposed, right? Guilt manipulation is, is, mu- is something that the SBC has to look out for because of this. It's the other side of the strength that they have. So, um, it, I mean, so like in the PCA, we've got, our fight is in a different spot. Right. Um, uh, our fight is in that um, in in the and some of this just is the natural outworking of a belief in a public the, the church is a public institution a public eschatology. Um, you have to fight back against against that temptation to try to reserve our respectability 
reserve, you know, we, um, so our temptation is in those spots, those places where it's like, well, a little bit of compromise helps, helps our witness as a public institution remain intact, a little bit of Mm. compromise, a little bit of nuance. Um, Now we should be able to nuance on the back end, but you, but nuancing on the front end before I speak, let me nuance is our temptation, right? Where, and then you never get to the prophetic uh, aspect of being a public institution um, where you're the, conscience of the other institutions you're the conscience of the the culture so to speak the conscience of society the public conscience of of society you stop doing that because you nuance everything before you speak so that you retain that respectability and you lose your prophetic your your prophetic voice goes hoarse um Mm. because it's been wasted away in nuance so that's our temptation. And so, you know, I look at, we're going to, we're going to have to keep fighting. I think the LGBTQ stuff, we're going to have to, I think really figure out how to speak prophetically as a, as a institution um, about um, trans stuff. Like what does it look like to say, Hey, they're lying to you. Come here for rest. That kind of prophetic to the trans community. Hey, they're using you. Come here and let us help you uh, find yourself for real, because they're they're lying to you when they say we're going to find you're going to help you find yourself through surgery. We're going to help you find yourself through pills, through hormone treatment. Right? We need to learn to speak prophetically to the trans community, saying, "Come over here for a light yoke. Come over here. Let us teach you how to find yourself. Come over here and hear the good news." that Jesus died and was raised for you. Um, we don't know how to do that. We don't do that well because we're so busy trying to nuance everything and retain, re- retain our respect. Um, and I mean, the press, the, the American church as a whole, especially the reformed church is more likely to preach about the gospel than to preach the gospel. We have a, um, that that's, that's another one of our big temptations. Well, the, the temptation that I see in the Southern Baptists is to pit the gospel against doctrine. Right. right. So <laughs> well, like, that, that's what I mean by the anti-intellectualism. Yeah. That, that was a protection when all the doctrinalists, all the dogmatists were sniffing around Paul Tillich's uh, boots looking for something to lick. You know, you have the, the dogmatists and the doctrinalists of the late 1800s in um in the early 1900s all going um secular right secularizing the doctrines of christ and the sbc because they're like we don't need no stinking doctrine they were protected uh we want just we just want jesus right that was a protection in that moment of time it it was i it it, it it was a protection that was, it, it was like wearing a bulletproof vest Yeah, where it's like, it's a protection so long as they shoot in the right spot. Right. Right. So long as they, they have bad aim. Um, it's a protection. As soon as they realize, Oh, if I raise the gun 12 inches and shoot him in the head, we're good. Um, or that really was a gunfight, right? 
like th- that really was a gunfight, but now we're so close. This is a knife fight. This is a knife fight. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I, th- you know? I think you're right. And I and I think learning to say when somebody starts to try to use guilt manipulation, you know, do you realize how big of a, you know, this is a sinful institution to learning to say like, whew, good thing Jesus died for us. What should we talk about though instead? Because that that's not how we make decisions here. We're not a guilt driven. We, we don't put sand in, in the tank, which guilt as a motivation is putting sand in the tank of an, of an institution. Do you think, you know, you were speaking about earlier that Presbyterians were making compromises so that they would not ruin their witness. You know, in the earlier parts of America, Presbyterianism was the driving, um, was, the, was the most popular form of Christian religion. They Everybody yeah. cared about what the Presbyterians thought, and they lost that. And Baptists are now in the exact same situation because before Baptists were like, look, we don't care what you say. We're going to lean on that Bible and what the Bible says and dot the end. And you can go fly seven kites, pound sand, kick rocks yeah. barefoot. You know what I mean? Um, that's, we don't, we don't care. And, right. and they went from the world can go pound sand, kick rocks barefoot to the whole world is watching what we're about to do. So let's make a good decision. Yeah. I think, well, I think it's because they were faithful in those moments that they ended up being the, the, the primary yeah, the lead absolutely. witness absolutely um, for the gospel, which, which they've done a lot of good. And so, you know, as our brothers and sisters, we should say, we should be grateful for them, but also pray that this moment isn't their, their undoing. Um, you know, the pray, you know, pray that they are, that they continue to hold strong. I, it's hard for me to imagine the SBC not splitting. I mean, I'm new to this game. You have basically filled me in on the SBC since I went down there to that founders conference. That was my first introduction to the SBC was that founders conference that we went down to. That wasn't really even SBC. <laughs> no, I know. I know you, you, but you, yeah. you, you filled kind me in all Gave me the, the overview and what's going on. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm late to the whole game, but that's never stopped me from having an opinion before. Right. <laughs> so, you know, as you, you were talking, I was thinking about something. I don't think when I look at what happened in 2019, I look back and I'm realizing the importance of that moment. I can't think of a moment like that for press for the PCA. Right. So, for- In recent recent history. So I think I um, think the reaction to the revoice conference is one of those. Right. And it's ongoing and you've got kind of a guess who's at the center of that. (laughs) Unfortunately, I wasn't trying to be. We just had Greg Johnson on. Right. That was I know that was amazing. But I think the but that that wasn't. Do you think that had the same sort of screech as the founders trailer? I don't think it did. I don't think anything has well, had no, but that that's kind of screech institutionally. Pres- Presbyterians are emotionally stunted. So I think <laughs> that's part of it. <laughs> Wait, are you trying to say that Baptists are uh overly hyped emotionally. So then they get super excited about things that really aren't that big. <laughs> not, 
not I'm not I wouldn't say overly hyped. That's the way you put it. I would oh, okay. just say okay. they're more emotional than us. <laughs> well, maybe that's why I roll with them like that because my charismatic side is kind of attracted to that. That's <laughs> probably that's probably because I yeah that, that's probably true. I wouldn't. So then you think there is still that same sort of impact flashpoint with Revoice, but I just can't think of a moment yeah. where you could have you could have killed it right then and there. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, w- when it first came up, I think what happened was the first response we weren't prepared institutionally, and so the first response laid out a series of accusations that weren't well researched and well formulated, mm. and so they all this got goes back. Overturned. This goes back to our. This goes back to our conversation about. Van Helsen, right? Like they always have a yeah. history and, and, and we're catching up. We're catching up. And so um, the immediate, here's our accusations. Well, they, they weren't true. They, they didn't start with carefully laying out good, ac- good, a good and true accusation. And so right out the gate, um, you have this declaration of innocence against these particular accusations that ended up making it a lot harder and taking a longer time. But mm. I, I do think that in general, the folks that were pushing that are pushing the revoice uh, agenda have been now made to feel un- uncomfortable enough in the PCA that they left. Now I think the roots of it um, actually go down to the fact that most of our, candidates for ministry are coming up through a public school system and they're getting all of that. That's the education they have, you know, that their BAs are coming from colleges that are teaching this by, so by the time they get to seminary, there's, there's no way a seminary, a, a handful of seminary professors in a couple of years can undo all of the educational roots that they're having to deal with. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I think we, we miss the mark by saying we've got to go fix the seminaries Right. Well, you've got good men at the seminaries doing their best to finish out the education, a non-Christian education with a few Christian books um, over the, a couple of years. And it's, there's no way. I mean, that's the system guarantees that we'll be weeding this garden from those roots for a long time because at best we chop the heads off of a couple of dandelions coming through. Um, but we're going to, we're going to lose the battle to the dandelions until we start seeding the soil with better, um, in a better, until we've got healthier soil, I guess you'd say. In and, the candidates. That, and, and, and that is a what process? That's a restoration of the family, a restoration of what education is, a restoration of understanding of church community, I think a restoration of of uh, historic worship practices, uh, church calendar, a lot of things that used to be around that support the uh, the imagine the education and the formation of the imagination of these of the young people in the church, so that by the time they get to seminary, they've got the foundation laid. So you can say, now let's let's put the second floor on. Let's add an attic. Um, but instead, uh, 
they're having to basically do deconstruction and reconstruction work along the way. So instead of it being a house that they're <clears throat> adding on to, seminary is a quick remodel process um, that remains unfinished when they, you know, because there's not enough time. I mean, kind of um, the thing that this is kind of what's bothered me about the question of revival is because I think the way that we think of revival nowadays is like revolution as if yep. God gives us a revival and now we're done. It's fixed. We have right. revival. Everybody we're done. We're good. We, we have revival, but that's not what it, we don't have a context for what revival is. Revival isn't something that you have. And then, you know, you don't work. There's like 20, 30, 40 years to figure out if that was revival. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, I, and, I think that's a, I think that's true is is um, revival means bringing back to life. Right. But if if you had, you know, if you had an iguana farm and you've got dead iguanas and then you revive them, you still have iguanas. And I, I think that's part of the problem with revival right now is we need reformation. We need we need something more than a more intense um, version of what we have right now. Right. We, we actually mm. need um, now it, this, this might be the next step moving towards that, right. That you, you'll know, as time goes on, I, you know, I look at the, at, at the work um, that you have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm re uh, rereading a book called The Inklings by Humphrey Car Carpenter, just about the relationship uh, amongst all these different Oxford professors when C.S. Lewis and Tolkien um, and Owen Barfield and Charles Williams were basically, they were, they were seeding a reformation in the church you know, um, a reformation of imagination, a reformation of the view of history, a reformation theologically. And um, it, that doesn't look like a revival, but mm. you look at all of the things that they touch, right? When you meet, you meet somebody who has really dug deep into Tolkien and you find out how much their, Christian life has been transformed. Somebody that's really dug deep into C.S. Lewis and you see um, how much their desire for Christ has been transformed mm. and grown. And the same with um, you know, uh, Owen Barfield, who I think is probably what we're going to need to be able to give an honest answer about Carl Jung to all of the young conservatives, young conservative males that are getting into Carl Jung right now. I think we're going to need a, a thinker like Owen Barfield who actually has tried to dig in and think about the, the psyche of the human from a Christian perspective mm. uh, and take into account or, and, and answer the um, what the, what the people research, you know, researching in psychology were coming across. And you've got this sort of, um, they were they were dealing in reformation 
and the fruit of the years, their years uh, of work has been reformative um, every, when it touches anything. What we need more of that before revival is a, a blessing because in, you know, instead of having an iguana farm, if you've got a, a sheep fold, revival is a huge blessing. I mean, I guess you can eat iguana too. So it might be a blessing. I've heard barbecued iguana is good, but I did. Um, eat, and I did eat barbecued crocodile last week, which was really fun. You didn't say it was amazing. So I don't believe you. No, it fun. was fun. I didn't fun. say it was amazing. It was fun to yeah. eat crocodile tail. I'd never, I'd never eaten crocodile tail. So. I, I don't, I don't actually, I think I have had fried croc. <laughs> Uh, it kind of tastes like chicken if you know how to do it. Yeah, right. it tastes. I mean, it tasted like uh, like rattlesnake. You know, ra- barbecued rattlesnake from Montana growing up. No, it's like I don't. I don't do the well, snake. <laughs> you're not. well within your Christian freedom to not eat the snake. That's <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, okay, I, I want to eat all the things. I want to try everything. I, I really want to eat penguin. I think that sounds fun. <laughs> how did you get there? How did you know. do that? A penguin? What made you say that little thing right there? I wonder what it tastes I, like. <laughs> I just wonder what I just whenever I see the penguins waddle, I always think, I wonder if that's like the veal of of chicken. Like what because they don't move, you know, that like veal is when yeah, never mind. Oh my goodness. <laughs> those I, are the question know, those are the questions that go through my head. <laughs> that that's scary. So you know, I agree, t- you, and you don't even have to live up here. That's that's. I've never thought about what a penguin tastes like. You know, I feel like now I feel bad though because I feel like Peter, like Lord, I'm not gonna um, eat anything unclean, and Peter's like, hey, it's all great, enjoy it all. I made it all, I didn't have it. Nah, just some things like I don't want to ever taste horse. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't need to taste horse. I yeah. don't need to taste. That's a steak would be great, you know, but. Mm-hmm. I'm not I yeah, don't, or steak. I, mean, I can do bear sausage maybe, but anyway. So bear is greasy. Oh, bear is very greasy. It makes good stew though. Bear stew, huh? it's really good because it's so greasy. Somebody needs to make Jason penguin stew. <laughs> I think it's illegal to kill. I don't penguin. know if you. <laughs> He'd be a poacher, but you know. Don't do that's... it. Don't ever send me a recipe for penguin stew. <laughs> Um, so I, I sent to you, I think it was last week. This is an old clip. This, this connects to what I was talking about. Identifying the crime scene. Right. So this is back in 2018, Tucker Carlson sat down with Ben Shapiro and talking about his book at the time. I can't remember the title of it. Um, uh, but one of the things that came up was care for the economy, love for the economy and how to help, um, the economy move forward and to protect people from losing their jobs. And so I'm going to play this real quick and I kind of want to, let's just watch it. If there's a point that you ever want to stop talk, just let me know. Let me see. Can you hear this? Why should you? Yeah. You can hear that. Yep. Oh, it just sounded like it was coming through my computer. Let me see if I can do it this way. How about this? You should be surprised when, Half of them say they prefer socialism. Well, I, you I, should not be surprised. So, I agree to a certain extent. I think that the, the, the question is when the pedal hits the metal, like you, you talk in the, in the book 
about technology and how it's shifting and taking away jobs from folks. Yes. And you make specific reference to truck driving and the fact yes. that there are going to be these automated cars on the roads. So would you, Tucker Carlson, be in favor of restrictions on the ability of trucking companies to use this sort of technology specifically to, you know, sort of artificially maintain the number of jobs that are available in the trucking industry? Are you joking? In a no, second. Just- in a second. In other words, if I were president, when I say to DOT, Department of Transportation, we're not letting driverless trucks on the road, period. Why? Really simple. Driving for a living is the single most common job for high school educated men in this country, in all 50 states. By the way, that's the same group whose wages have gone down by 11% over the past 30 years. The social cost of eliminating their jobs in a 10-year span, five-year span, 30-year span, is so high that it's not sustainable. So the greater good is protecting your citizens from, look, Capitalism is the best economic system I can think of, I think, that anyone's ever thought of. But that doesn't mean that it's a religion and everything about it is good. No, but, but There's no I, Nicene creed of capitalism that I have to buy into. What I care about is living in a country where, you know, decent people can live happy lives, actually. And so, no, I would say, no, are you joking? And I maybe would make up some pretext for public consumption, like, oh, they're dangerous. The technology is not quite finessed. No, no. But the truth would be, I don't want to put 10 million men out of work so this, because you're going to have 10 million dead families and the cascading effect from that will wreck your country. So I, I'm going to ask about the limiting principle there in just a second. I, I, am I right to understand that Tucker Carlson just said that he would lie to us in order to be able to get this? <laughs> Did I just understand that right? He said, I would yeah. probably say something like, hey, you know, it's not good. But the real issue would be jobs. Did I just, did I just, I heard that part right. Like he would absolutely lie to us in order to be able to get this. I appreciate how honest and straightforward he is because I think it makes it possible to actually have conversation, which he does for a living and he does well. Yeah. He's like, he doesn't, he's not nuanced in anything. This is what I would do. Probably have to lie to get it done and I'd be willing to do it. That is a, that was pure Machiavellianism. Pure. That was some straight, pure, conservative Machiavellianism. Okay, Jason, here's 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 what's crazy. I don't know. There are very few conservatives that I like, Christians, who I've seen, who are opposed to this. Most of them, particularly the Christian nationalist guys, who I appreciate for what they're doing and a lot of stuff, thought this was fantastic. Yeah, because it's a it's a protect it's a you know protect protect your own mentality, right? And that and that's what he said is we're we got our job is to protect the jobs of these people, right? That's okay. That's what the government is for is to make sure these people can have jobs. I feel like we're at a crime scene, one that's probably happened a long time ago, and we're just now paying attention to it. Yeah, but this. Is that what th- what I believe people really love about Ron DeSantis is that he sees that conservative and particularly Christians and white folks are really under a, t- a real attack. And there is a particular power that seeks to unroot um, their presence and any authority that they might have to completely gut them. And he sees that and he's like, absolutely not. We need to take this head on and deal with this problem. And he's doing things like what Tucker is saying here 
in order to be able to fight back. So when you talk about Machiavelli, like this is straight up pure Machiavellianism. I don't, these, the people who I know who like this kind of have a concept of Machiavellianism, but maybe they forgot. Can you kind of freshen up? Maybe like, okay, this is why this is Machiavellianism. And then why is Machiavellianism ultimately bad? Yeah. Well, there's two things that, that make it Machiavellian. The first one is he says, capitalism is the best system anyone's ever thought up. Right. Right. Um, so, but, and then he says, but it's not a religion. Now it's true. There's not a Nicene creed of capitalism and, and I wouldn't want one because he's right. It's not a religion. It's, um, and, and as Tucker, the, the, the longer Tucker's been in, in public, the more openly Christian he has been, which I think has been encouraging. Right. So I don't know how long ago this was, but he is, um, 2018 2018 yeah so it was that that was right about when he started becoming much more public about his faith and he's he's um you know he's like an old school conservative anglican type of dude so um and i would be curious if he still holds to what he just said you know or if he's changed his mind or because you always can't so um but what makes it machiavellian is he says this is uh, that capitalism is the, the thing that we thought up, right? So capitalism is somehow a system that people thought up and then imposed upon the world to control it, mm. right? So um, Machiavelli said that reality is not, uh, doesn't have a nature, that, the, that by the power that humans um, wield, we give reality its nature. We shape reality into its nature with pa- with the power that humanity yields. And if you can get all of the power of humanity into a single into a single uh, body, that um, that that body will have the power to transform reality into in- anything that it wants it to be. Right. That's that Machiavellian metaphysic is the root problem. Now, we because now as he works it out um, in what's called like a real politic, R-E-A-L-P, it's usually spelled R-E-A-L-P-O-L-I-T-K or I-T-C-K, real politic. Um, It just means that politics is power. And it only the only thing that changes that is who wields the power not if it comes down to power. Um, and then the conservatives say, and the purpose of the power is to serve um, our people, right? Um, and the left says the purpose of the power is to serve an ideal, right? And that, so you've got the conservative Machiavellians that really grew up in the 40s. They were the ones that left the communist party and became conservatives um, all around Whitaker chambers, that whole time period. Wait, what you, what? Yeah. So there's a whole group of communists that left communism and brought their Machiavellian, their Machiavellianism with them into the conservative party and said, look, we can show you how to manipulate for conservative ends and the conservative party embraced them. And they, transformed the way 
that conservative politics was done. So, so, so you're saying this is not Edmund Burke's conservatism. That when we talk about this conservatism, is, we're right. not talking about Edmund Burke's conservatism or, or, or Kirk's conservatism. We're talking about communism's uh, dead or reject rejects conservatism. Yeah, it's it's and and really they're nationalism nationalists. So communism was international Machiavellianism, and but then this group that sort of invented American nationalist conservatism. Um, they show up in as they're leaving the communist party. And what's hard is many of them were, were the good guys in their fight, right? When you look at the fight they were having, you say, well, they were the good guys because they're trying to stop communism. Um, they're, they're defects it, from communism, they're, right? Yeah. They're, they're trying to defend um, the American way. And part of that is Christianity but they're not trying to defend the church. They're trying to defend Christianity, right? What, what they call the Judeo Christian tradition. They're trying to defend that because it's an important foundation stone in America, right? So they're nationalists and the Judeo Christian tradition of law or the Judeo Christian tradition of morality is a part of Americanism and they want to defend it. Right? So, um, so you look at them and you're like, well, they're, they're, they're kind of the good guys, but they're kind of the good guys, the way, um, you know, the, the way I'm trying to think of a, another example from history or literature where you have, um, this kind of interesting stand up and defend you, but they're not really you. It's like Russia, Russia and, uh, and America, yeah, Join joining forces. together to fight to fight the Nazis. We're like, well, they're right. on our side, um, yeah. but they're not. They're not the same as us. And um, so, Russell Kirk is kind of the end. He's the, sort of the last one that's trying to defend the old school Burkean um, conservatism, and he loses. Right. Uh, I guess William F. Buckley was doing the, something similar. Right. You've got um, conservatism where it says we actually take. Um, we 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 believe that you that winning the hearts of people to the truth is how conservatism advances. Right? You don't advance by winning conservatism by winning elections. You win you advance conservatism by education and winning the hearts of people to the beauty of truth. Um, to they they by uh, growing by growing a population that grows in virtue is what you're after, not power. So the, you don't look at the public school system and say, the problem is we've got trans books in the public library. And if we can get the trans books, then we will go back to when we were, we got to get enough people in charge. We can get rid of the trans books and go back to the way it was. So you, you look at it and you say, is this an education that fosters virtue? And obviously it's not. I mean, just but read Wolf's gonna hook up, hook up. Um, you know, Tom Wolf's book, Hook Up, I think it's called Hook Up. And it's about the hookup culture of, of high school graduates going into college. It's, you'll feel dirty for months and months. Um, it's so crazy 
the statistics and the stories, the stories he tells um, with the statistics. You know, he's a he is a journalist first and a novelist second. So, um, but that book is just you're just like, oh my gosh, this is that we do not have an education that is currently producing virtue, so or encouraging virtue. So if that's the case, the way that a Machiavellian would look at it and say, well, what we need to do then is ban the books that are not virtuous because they are problematic. The way a conservative would look at it and say, then a, a, a Burkean would look at it and say, why don't we have virtuous people who are guarding the libraries that want a certain type of books inside of it? What's going on behind the tapestry? Is that, is that a right. fair way to exactly. So, um, that you would say, so uh, a conservative would say, are we raising up virtuous teachers? Mm. Where, what are, you, you don't fix it with a new curriculum because the teacher is the curriculum in a conservative understanding because it's not facts and data that's being passed on. It's, it's virtue and virtue and knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, virtue mm. and wisdom, I guess, is probably a better way to put it. Virtue and wisdom is the point. You can't, uh, a curriculum can't pass on virtue and wisdom. You need a teacher with virtue and wisdom to pass it on. It's a personal human thing, right? The conservatives were the ones that developed, they, they talked about teaching in schools constantly um, because uh, for that reason, the when the left talks about schools, they wanted to invent machines, that uh, bureaucratic machines, bureaucracies um, that that produced the citizens that were needed for the mechanistic um, the the mechanism of society. Actually, the mechanism of the economy is probably a better way to put it. So, so Jason, you just made me think of something. I was just thinking of the fact that let's say Mein Kampf, the book Mein Kampf. Yeah. Um. Uh, the book Mein Kampf in the hand, it doesn't matter. The book is neutral ultimately, right? It has things in it that are bad. Of course, I'm not saying it doesn't, but let's, it's, it's ultimately neutral in an environment that needs a teacher in order to explain the virtue or lack thereof of the book. So then it doesn't matter what books are in the library. If you have the virtue in the teachers to reveal um, like a bad character in a story what why we hit why are we reading this what's the lessons to learn from this why is this bad what the teacher uh is the one who is influencing the virtue to the student even through a curriculum that's broken bad right not good right now i'm not Dan saying dante's not saying, time yeah dante's time in hell leaves him more virtuous because he has virgil as a guide right right that's he's very spending good. time He's spending time literally with hellions and it yeah. makes, and he ends up more virtuous because he has Virgil as a guy. And, and so, and there, I want to make a distinction here because there's a difference in talking about certain books and certain things that are not worthy to even be printed in a book. Pornography, for instance. Right. Yeah. You know, that, those they were not even, that's not even in the category of communication, but there are, um, there are certain writers W.E.B. Du Bois, right? I'm not a fan of his at all. I think he was uh, underground. He wanted communism in a lot of ways. He thought it was yeah. beautiful. Um, he's He per sold out, you know, to uh, white liberals, the a lot of the black community. I'm not a fan of his. And yet I know it's important that my children read 
his mm-hmm. works. And, with and, a guide, right? With, yeah, but as with a guide, I, I have Malcolm X in my house, right? His his autobiography, um, and I want my son to understand some of the general revelation principles that Malcolm stumbled upon, and how to that apart from the Holy Spirit, these are used in themselves as for wickedness if you don't understand right. how to properly use them. Um, you know, um, so there's lots of ways. As a guide, you're you're so right about that, and, and think about it like this: the guide is what makes the content um, virtuous or not. Yeah, right? a blessing or a curse. Uh, oh, thank because, you, a blessing or a curse. Yeah, because yeah, we, sh- we should not forget Mein Kampf, right? We, we need to remember that so that we recognize it because right now the people that are actually on Hitler's team are the ones, one of the things they do is they accuse other people of being Hitler, right? To, as a, which is what Hitler would do to for him to gain power, right? The the accusation you're all doing this, you're you must be evil, but the, it's actually the thing you're doing. Um, that's a Nietzschean, um, a Machiavellian way of approaching um, power. That it says it doesn't matter how you get it, right? The, um, it it doesn't matter how you end up with it. <clears throat> because once you have it, then you um, you're in charge. If you, and then once you have it, whatever you need to do to keep it is justified because it's a uh, it's a struggle for power, right? It's a survival of the fittest. Uh, politics is a survival of the fittest, uh, zero sum game. So it doesn't matter how you get it, how you keep it. Um, it, it only matters how you wield it. And Hitler wanted to wield it for the, uh, you know, for the good of the, the quote unquote restoration of the pure German race. And um, it, it's a, uh, a purely Machiavellian view of things. So then when, so when Tucker is saying, listen, if we don't protect high school educated men who drive trucks, then we are going to devastate the economic uh, culture of America because we have let all their jobs go the way of the dodo bird because of self-driving vehicles. And for the preservation of the uh, human beings and our people, we cannot let anybody take this space from them. That seems like a good thing because well, his care for individuals being able to have jobs to take care of their families, 10 million, I think he says is the number, 10 million working jobs, and then 10 million families attached to that. That's a, that's a lot of people. If you look at it, ultimately, you know, we're looking at 30, 40 million people, 50 million people affected by even more that don't have jobs. You know what I mean? So it seems like, well, isn't the job of someone who is in authority and power to preserve the good of the people? But who's he choosing? By choosing the uh, truck driver, who's he not choosing? The owner of the company. The owner of the company, the people that run robot factories, the children of robotics engineers. He he's picking you're, you're, he's always you're always picking one group over another and you're you're 
using the power to give advantage to someone. That's what fascism always does. Fascism picks one corporate because because that's what he's espousing, right? He's espousing fascism and the economic control, um, the the economic control of the uh, uh, or the uh, economic control by the government to favor one corporation over another, um, or to favor you know one group over another or one corporate entity over another. He's saying truck drivers, I'm going to favor them over against robotics engineers over against robotics factory workers you know, um, over against the professors uh, who, who teach them pro- and professors the, who teach that right so people who make the cards and yeah yeah it's not the sort of th- so you might say um you might say okay should we subsidize the uh the people the tr- truck drivers um, retraining to go work in robotics, right? May, you know, is there something like that, or you know, there might be so, there might be something that a government could legally do. I'm not sure if that would be even a legal option or whatever. But what you're saying is these people I consider more American than those people. They're getting more of America's resources than those people. So. Um, it's a, you know, and unfortunately, it's sort of classic communist rhetoric because he's saying, look, do you not value the workers of America? We value the workers of America. I mean, that is a communist ploy, um, usually because there's more workers to vote than there are, you know, executives or. So do you think just working this out, do you think there would actually be a, um, you know, you got 10 million, let's say that we get self-driving vehicles. I mean, the fact that he even bring up safety as an issue is kind of hilarious, but you know, do you think that this would actually, um, if you played it, I guess there's a couple of different questions. What is the responsibility of the federal government in the economy? Excuse me. That's one thing. And then the other thing, maybe we could talk about these separately is, could could this kind of technology be a threat to real workers where you don't have these you lose 10 million jobs in an industry and that's a reality that's dangerous um the first question is what's the federal government's responsibility biblically speaking it's to provide safe space for a, you know agreements market transactions to, to happen and um, to back up uh, agreements that have been made freely. Right. And then, um, you know, beyond that to, um, to, to basically, um, I mean, basically it's, they're providing space for freedom of, of movement, um, freedom mm. to gather, uh, and then the protection of, contracts right so if you make contracts um the civil government is the the one who backs up contracts so you you, you, that i don't have to just walk over to my neighbor with a shotgun and say you're gonna you're gonna do what you said when we signed that contract you know that's the the civil government's job um the both through the sheriff 
as well as through the court system, right? That's the, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's all really that the federal government should be doing, right? Um, the ability to move and the ability to trade uh, freely. I mean, how to, how is it possible to get back to that, all that? I don't know. That That's a whole nother question, but we've seen robots come into industries before. Um, and the only time that ends up completely destroying everything is when you try to get federal subsidies to solve Mm. it as a problem and you try to get federal subsidies to solve it. So the railroad industry, they tried to solve the problem of needing fewer and fewer engineers by government subsidies and basically destroyed the railroad industry. Um, they, Detroit. They, <laughs> just, they destroyed Detroit by trying to solve it with subsidies. You got, you start getting more and more robots on the line at the factories. And um, because they kept subsidizing and subsidizing the workers, they hung around when there wasn't work. They hung around when there wasn't wealth to be gained. There was cash, but there wasn't wealth to be gained by any of these folks. Mm. And so they hung around and gutted Detroit, destroyed Detroit, what used to be a beautiful city. Um, uh, they destroyed it by with government subsidies. Um, and then you had something really similar in um, the Bronx, right? Where you had the, um, the, the government subsidization uh, of their um, completely destroys the Bronx um, and it's so interesting because it happened in the seventies and, um, and then, and then Reagan gets blamed for it a lot because Reagan said, you know, what they, what they ended up calling Reaganomics, uh, which was trick, trickle down economics. Um, Reagan said, we're going to, we, we, we need to kickstart the economy by getting the federal government out of it. Right. We're going to lower taxes, we're going to lower corporate taxes and that's going to give them the ability to have to go get jobs. And the places where there were heavy federal subsidies never got to partake in the economic boon that came from, uh, that, that came from Reaganomics. So places like the Bronx, Detroit, uh, the, uh, Cincinnati, you know, there are these places where, um, you had heavily subsidized certain industries and um, never, they didn't get to partake in what was a huge economic boon that came out of Reaganomics that ended up basically funding the entire Clinton era um, in spite of all their terror. You know, the, the, yeah. it, it wasn't the, that wasn't the worst um, period for economic policy because you, you had the fight between the left and the right, kept them from getting a whole lot done. Um, so. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. The good old days. So, but the um, economic subsidies in the long run destroy a people um, because you, it keeps people from moving to where there's, where there is wealth and there's upward mobility. When there's easy cash, people don't go to where the cash is hard, but the wealth is there. It's welfare. It is. It is. It's, it's corporate. I mean, you've got, and I like the term corporate welfare. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, um, 
and it, it's a term that the left tends to use as an insult. I'm like, but they're right, right? That is corporate welfare. Let's. I don't want to do that either because I'm not a fascist. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> there is something in us. So okay. So then I guess I, I want to. So then what do you do? So now let's say you have somebody. Because this is, I think, part of the problem here in the other side that is liking what's going on is saying, you guys don't understand what time we are in. We are in the time now where what you're saying about how the whole function and flow is supposed to operate, that stuff is gone. It's all, yeah, it's all fascism, right? Yeah. They wouldn't say it like that, but, but yeah. And, and, and so, but what we need to do then is protect the people that have their lives on the line. This is the real world. They're going to, it's only going to be us or them. It's only going to be in the, the, the big tech, if you haven't been paying attention and the big business are out for their own interests and they don't give a damn about the guy who has a family. And so they're going to create self-driving vehicles. So they don't have to pay taxes on him. They don't have to worry about, um, and problems and issues. Insurance is cheaper. You know, they don't have human error in them and they're going to buy out this whole industry and 10 million people are going to be gone. And that's the real world. And those people aren't going to be able, if, if they're high school students who don't have an education, they're not going to be able to get jobs anywhere else. And now you just gave this guy who has billions of dollars, the ability to completely remove a working human force from society. That's where we're really at. So in order to be able to fix this problem, Jason, you have to understand we need to make sure that he cannot operate that way so that these people have lives. Um, I think, I, I mean, if the government really wanted to do something to help, they would lower gas taxes. <laughs> With the moment they lower gas taxes, anybody even says, hey, let's lower gas taxes, I'll believe that they that they actually want to help. Um, but I don't think they really do. I think it is guys like Tucker guys like Tucker. I yeah, think my... T- Tucker's not running for office, right? Which is why he can be honest. He's not running <laughs> for office. Right? So, so he'll just be honest. Here's what I would do if I was in office, I'm not running. So I can be honest about what I would do. <clears throat> Most of the people in office are worrying about their next election. Right. So if it's a move and now this is just me being cynical, but if they do something um, that's not worrying about their next election, um, that, that either keeping the party happy with them so they continue to get the support of the party um, or you're worrying about their, their next election, um, then I think what we need to do is we need to a couple of things, start worrying about local politics a lot more because that's where a lot of this stuff ends up getting implemented. We also, I got to spend some time with some folks that are very high up in some of the, in one of the banks that was bailed out in 2008. And so immediately I was like, Hey, what was, what was that like? What, what, what happened really? And they said, well, one of the things that nobody ever talks about is the fact that some of the banks that took bailouts in 2008 paid them back and that money disappeared. <laughs> right? so, 
<laughs> there he's like because some some of the banks you know they they took it as a as a as welfare and it's been very destructive on the banking industry he said some of the banks that understand how money works because they're not um they're not, they're not uh economic they're they're not fascist banks they the um they said, hey, it's not a good idea for the government to loan out trillions of dollars and not get paid back. That will destroy the value of the dollar. We depend upon the value of the dollar. We're going to pay back our loan, even if you're saying, well, we might be able to work something out and you won't have to pay it back. So so we, we paid our loan back. And he said, and you know what? Nobody knows where those payments went. The money just disappeared. So there's, there's also, I mean, I think we need God to step in and protect his people, but that means we need to become a truth telling people. We need to become a sexually righteous people that honors the marriage bed. We need to become uh, a people that look at our kids and say, I'm going to make sure you get discipled and you know, and understand what reality is. Right. And know that this is a problem that's so big that God has to be the one who who fixes it at the high levels. We fix it in our jurisdiction. So I think that's the first thing to realize. How do we make sure we raise kids that despise fascism, right? Raise kids that are ambitious, raise kids that, that know the difference between cash and wealth and um, don't, don't ignore the latter for the, for the former, right? Don't ignore wealth in order to gain cash and, and know that you, that the long-term economic play is, um, is, uh, that ends you up, that ends you with wealth rather than cash wealth that can be passed on to your kids is, is a better way to do it. And, you know, start businesses and all that sort of thing. But this is not a problem that you fix, um, from the ground up. This is a problem that the judgment of God fixes. Um, so, you mean from the top down or you mean from the ground? What do you mean ground up? I is mean, this, this is, this is not a, you know, we got to run a different person for, we, we need to run a different person for Congress. We, if we could just, you know, this, is, this is, we've got a, a systemic, uh, a systemic problem where when, Solomon says, let me tell you the thing the Lord's the Lord hates. Those are the things that we subsidize and that our government runs on bribes. Um, you judges that judge not according to righteousness, but according to the, uh, what, what gains them things. You know, you've got things like the banks in San Francisco, uh, foreclosing on a bunch of houses and, dropping them into markets in mass in other places and holding on to all of the, to the foreclosed properties close to them so that the president's, the value of the president's house doesn't go down. You know, like this wicked stuff that that's you've got wicked stuff going on at the, at the top levels. And it's the stuff that when that Solomon lists is the thing, the Lord's hates, we have to look at it and say, okay, Lord judgment is coming on that. What, what does righteousness look like in my jurisdiction? Because that's how you avoid the judgment of God. It is by being able to say, 
Lord, look at us. We've been over here. We've been loving our families. We've been loving your people. We've been evangelizing. We've been worshiping. We've been, uh, we've been loving our neighbor, you know, um, doing that sort of thing. Um, and so when judgment falls on our country because high level, because the high level bankers are bribing congressmen on the regular, um, and then the congressmen are giving them uh, unfair advantages in exchange for donations to their campaign. When the judgment comes on all of that stuff, we can say, Lord, I'm just here trying to live my life. I'm just here trying to live quiet and peaceable life um, that has in, you know, raise kids to love you and uh, serve my church, serve my neighborhoods or, you know, that, that sort of thing. I don't think we charge up to the top and fix it. <laughs> okay. So let me, cause it's, it, I, you cornered me. You, I, you did a, the most amazing Jesus juke right there. Um, it was amazing. I didn't even see your feet touch the ground. It was really good. Uh, and I was, I'm in it. I'm, I'm with you. But if that guy don't have tithe money to be able to give to the Lord because he doesn't have a job because Elon Musk got self-driving trucks. Well, but I mean, so sometimes you do have to say, I mean, this is where you you do prep for this sort of thing by when you do have money, you donate to the Deacon's Fund, right? You you say, I know there's people in, in the church that need this. I don't know who they are, but I know the deacons do. So you'll put a little bit of an extra aside for the Deacon's Fund when you have it. And then when you need it, you go to the Deacon's Fund yourself too. And that's that's... Um, how it's in God intends it to work. Um, make sure that the people in your church aren't, aren't um, going hungry, aren't you know, unable to pay their, uh, pay, you know, pay their insurance, pay, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, I mean, sometimes people lose houses, but when they do, and the church surrounds them and says, let's get you, get you, get you guys into an apartment, get your feet back on your, under you, make sure that you got food and you know, all that sort of thing. But that ha- that means you have to know each other. You have to be living in community enough that when this you're... ain't attractive. No, Jason. No, you just you're not answering the question. You this is not attractive. <laughs> you're. I want you to fix the trucking industry. I I want to keep my job and I want it fixed. <laughs> I want the I want that thing over there fixed. It's a problem, and you need to do the thing where you you use your head and history to be like, well, here's how we put the thing together and fix it. So, you're not giving me that. <laughs> no, I'm not. Do you remember? Do you remember back when whale oil was the primary source of light in America? No, no, I've read about it, but no. Yeah. So, um, when electricity comes along, they said, "What are we going to do?" Yeah, all the whalers are going to lose their jobs, and so they yeah. started subsidizing the whale oil industry. That's the reason that whales almost went extinct. Right. Mm. So it was fascism that almost caused the whales, the, the, uh, the sperm whale, I think it was the sperm whale to almost go extinct because all of a sudden it wasn't, you didn't have to find people to sell whale oil to there weren't, there weren't enough people using whale oil to triple the number of people out whaling 
Government money, though, could triple the number of people out whaling immediately, right? Um, but wow, inflation and okay. whale, yeah, yeah. So, um, so suddenly, you um, there was all of this government money to be had if you were a whaler, and so it, the number of whalers started to grow. Um, it, same thing happened with corn. You know, um, you, when they started subsidizing corn, all of a sudden you're growing more corn than is necessary and you're having to burn a bunch of it because you can't sell it. That is going to be used for ethanol. Um, I still don't understand the science of ethanol and I've tried to dig in, but it's hard to, to sort out the propaganda. Um, ethanol seems to be bad for, for the way we currently build engines. Um, but it's, it doesn't, but it burns differently. And, but the reason that you go to the pump and there's ethanol added to your gasoline isn't because ethanol itself has proven to be a more efficient or effective form of fuel, but because it's subsidized by the government. And so you get kickbacks if you mix it in with your, if you buy it, right? You get kickbacks if you buy it, you get kickbacks if you grow the corn for ethanol, right? Um, Corn is really hard on the ground, right? And so it, it should be rotated um, the, to protect the soil. You should rotate through with corn. And if you pro just produce the amount of corn that people actually want, then you could do that. But instead, they sort of rape the soil by growing corn and corn and corn and corn because you can get government subsidies that are worth more than if you're selling it to people, right? There's a... Um, a destructiveness that uh, subsidies destroy industries uh, and, and through that end up destroying all sorts of other things in the process. Whereas the, um, the needs of people actually tend to really balance an industry out really well if it's just aimed at what the needs of people are. So, and so when electricity came along, it would have put the whale oil industry out of business for the most part. There would have, but we would have had plenty of sperm whales at this point. Although the population has has grown back um, really well, we don't have the verge on the verge of extinction on the verge of extinction problem that you used to have, and that's a Christian concern, right? Cons conservationism um, was. Before environmentalism came on, came along, conservationism is what it was called, and it was a Christian understanding of our our duty is to conserve for the for our neighbor and for the next generation um, the the resources that God has given us in the world, right? So that's the conservationist movement is what got us like Yellowstone Park, which is a great thing to conserve so that the next generation can come and see God's handiwork and um, and you know. It, I'd be curious to see if it supports itself. I bet it supports itself with tourism at this point. Yeah, you um, know, the, my, my only problem with conservation is that I found that a lot of the communists have found their way in there so that they can have no land ownership and it becomes all everybody owns it. And yeah, so, the, that's the environment. So environmentalism is the is the communist version of conservationism. They all hide under some of the same some of the same titles right now. So because they it works conservation, they hide behind Roosevelt on that one, you know, and 
Teddy's yeah. good. And so they all, but, but there's, that's there's what they a, always, that's what they always do. Right. They, they always do. Have, they, so we can expect that, but that doesn't mean we say, I mean, maybe we need to come up with a new. I, no, no, it's not, it's not coming right. up with the title. It's make sure that we don't lose the responsibility and ownership of an individual to his own land to conserve it. Right. Like yes. th- that's what I mean by when I say conservation, because what the conservationists want to do is say no one owns it. And so, <laughs> but that's yeah. not conserving at that point. There's no one to take care of it and, and, and to manage it. But the, the, there were, there were always commonwealth tracts of land yeah. that were owned by everyone, by the community. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Right. Yeah. So, you, yep. the the idea of of the commonwealth uh that that we have that there is something that is owned by everyone right that if i have if, if i have a tract of land that doesn't give me the right to to um take every deer that ever comes across the land right, because right. The, the deer are not mine the deer are everyone's so i have to take the i can take the amount of deer that my family needs but those deer are, are need to be able to roam free and so if i put up a big fence that keeps all the deer suddenly in i've actually stolen from my neighbor right right because the yeah. so that yeah, that's I, a de- I, deuteronomic principle so figuring out what what is how do you work that out um we live in a post bureaucratic society most of the conservationist philosophy was developed in a pre-bureaucratic society so you didn't yeah. have the depersonalization of ownership even right. in the imagination yet right. so when they talk conservation the depersonalization of ownership is not even a possibility like how do you what would that look like right so it that's why it's the um you know the the marines answer to the president there there's not a bureaucracy that says, you know, that the, the Marines answer to it's a, there's personal responsibility. So if the Marines right. go off and do something terrible, it was, it's the president's responsibility. Yeah. That was the way they thought of conservationism. The governor isn't, is responsible for the common land, the Commonwealth uh, that, that a state has. And so that's why there weren't really federal Commonwealth laws. Except out in Idaho, I think the federal government owns a large portion of Idaho land. Now, yeah, right yeah, now, now they do. Yeah, yeah, and nobody takes care of it. So it, California too, which is why we get forest fires, right? That's yeah. So anyway, so I, I just want to keep um maybe we finish up here. There is I, you know, I've always thought uh you know, thinking about it like this. Okay, so when I think about the world, I think about the fact that it's kind of like hide and go seek, the way the guide has designed everything. Mm-hmm. And what you don't want to do is hinder from somebody to go and seek what God has hidden. Right? Like that's that's a principle right. there. Um, God is, puts treasures all around. He doesn't have a problem with us seeking out those things. And you know, when you read Proverbs, one of the things that's clear is that finding those things aren't that hard with wisdom everywhere yelling from the tops. It's right here. I'm right <laughs> here. Like wisdom is as you are seeking wisdom is right. I mean, if you believe that this is that kind of world and I do, then wisdom is there screaming out that anybody who is seeking after it is going to find 
the treasures that's hidden, right? And and so you don't want to hinder that kind of reality. Right. And and people are the kind of beings that are designed in their very nature to seek after those treasures and to create amazing things with those type of treasures. Yeah. And when you hinder that, like you said, you incentivize them not being able to do that, then you have problems. So yeah. I don't think and, – and we've seen – I guess the question, why is it that Christians who believe, who understand that kind of world and know this is the kind of world we live in, find something like what Tucker Carlson, excuse me, what Tucker Carlson says, attractive and not just attractive, essential if we're going to preserve our way of life? Well, I think it's because they, we, we live in a time when men don't want to take responsibility, right? The egalitarianism guts men of that fundamental desire and drive that says, I'm going to take responsibility for myself and my family. I'm going to provide, I'm going to protect. I'm reading a great book right now with uh, some teenage boys uh, called the men we need just, and we just get together for early morning cup of coffee once a week. And we read a chapter together and talk about it. And, um, and it's, it, it's just a, um, it's a, it's a way of hopefully these teenage boys connecting with another older man in the church, right? So that they um, have uh, the, that deeper masculine connection in the church. Um, so when they say, Hey, I need a cup, I need some more advice, you know, when they hit college, somebody that they can call, that's not their dad. And um, so you, you, that's part of it. But a big part of it is this is a great, very simple book about the responsibility uh, that, that men take responsibility, men protect, men guard, and they garden, right? It's, that's what the book is about. Um, and practical ways to, to plan to be a man that grows up and takes responsibilities for his family, provides for his family, protects his family, gets his family to church. It's like really just simple principles. Um, and it's these are men with good dads, and it's still blowing their mind every week, right? Because they're like, oh, they're getting a vocabulary for uh, of what it means to take responsibility because they're not given one. There's not a societal vocabulary that encourages masculine responsibility taking, protection, guarding, provision, you know, that that um, a, uh, ambition, right? The, the goodness of ambition, that sort of thing. Um, and what's What I find, what I've found encouraging is and exciting recently is running into people that have started businesses that I wouldn't have ever thought of, but they've started businesses because they saw a niche, they saw a place where they could go in and serve. So talking to a recently, you know, uh, talking to a guy, and you know he he provides um, cardboard boxes to shipping for to uh, corporate corporate bodies that do a lot of shipping. And he just said, I looked around and said, well, we're getting our cardboard boxes from two States over who else is. Oh, look, everybody in this whole area is I'm going to start manufacturing cardboard boxes right here because I can deliver them without shipping them. I don't have to ship them three States so I can provide them cheaper. And so he started a cardboard box factory. That is not a sexy startup. Um, and he's made an enormous amount of money 
because and and he's a great guy whose family is now well provided for because he he had the creativity to see a need and now he he's got lots of employees he's got he's helping a lot of other men um there's always always a place where you can step in and serve and make a living um it the the that's the kind of world we live in so um if um, the men filled with ambition when when that are tr- that you know have their own you know small trucking company or medium sized trucking company and lose their job will find other jobs and then employ those other men that lost their jobs it we don't live in a zero sum game so that if a robot takes that job there's no other opportunities they're ob- they're going to starve that's a good point that's a really good point that's there is a cosmology to this issue yeah, where it's that, go ahead that's where i wanted to start with when i said his fat he that there there were two things i forgot that the for this so the first one is this it's machiavellian and the second one is he has when he says capitalism um is not a religion it's a human idea he is actually saying capitalism is not a is not just a description of reality, whereas it is a description of reality, right? It, um, it you know, capitalism is um, the the God is a capitalist, right? God takes resources and multiplies them and ends up with more rather than less, right? Um, and that's what that's what capitalism when it's functioning well, that's what it does when it's, when it's not crony capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism or fascist capitalism, (coughs) crony capitalism is just fascism. Um, But when capitalism is functioning, you take capital and you create means of production and you end up with more than you had before, right? You end up with wealth that wasn't, that is, that was created by the investment of capital. And so you invest the capital in the creation of wealth that, that produces more and you end up with more than you had before. That's the kind of world God created is that when you invest capital, well, um, when you invest it in the means of production, you end up with more capital than you had before. That is um, the, so when an industry disappears, we don't have to be afraid because there's plenty of other industries coming. The, um, the, they don't just go the, away and yeah, creates right? more because that's what seed does. You end up with robot truck texts. You don't have robot truck texts before that. You end up with pro um, with with uh, robot or with uh, you know people that have to plan the routes for robot trucks. You end up with mm. with all sorts of other jobs that weren't there before. Um, you know. It just like um, you know when when you when so, when one industry gets more efficient, you don't end up with less. You end up with more, right? The the robot the the creators of the factories that create robots all go up everywhere, and so there's more jobs there, right? Just it's not a zero sum game. One industry getting more efficient actually blesses all the industries blesses lots of people beyond itself. We just finished putting together our job creation um, numbers for uh, the construction we're working on. 
and the there's there's layers right the direct hires the um <clears throat> the people that are uh that you pay for outside so that the contractors that you hire and then the jobs that are created by the money that you spend on your direct hires and your contractors so you've got the three layers of of what you bring into an economy when you start a new business um direct hires contractor hires and then how those people that you hired spend their money those are all real um ways that the the wealth or the the capital in a society or in a community can grow um even if one industry has to sh it shrinks in the process so um so those are the two things is the Machiavellian view of power over reality. And then the idea that somehow capitalism is man-made um, it, it's capitalism when it's functioning properly is just saying, what kind of world do we live in? How do we live well in that world? We live in a world of it's overflowing from the generosity of a triune God. Um, and how do we live well in that world? Well, we, invest the capital in an overflowing system. So when you see something like self-driving trucks making, I'm going to forget that when you see the steam engine allowing transportation of goods to go from one country to the other faster than a rowboat <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, or faster than a sailing boat, then you look at that and be like, so you might lose a bunch of guys who are not going to be selling because you have steam engines but everyone gains faster, better goods to get there safely from one place to the next. And you can have more boats and more drivers to drive those steamboats to transfer goods. And then it puts production up faster and higher from those people who. So there's jobs all over the place that get multiplied because efficiency is brought to that particular industry. And so right. when we see something like 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 self-driving trucks, we should say, wait, wait, there's about to be a boatload. I, I remember, did you did you ever see um uh hidden numbers? Well, um was that this the is one perfect? Yeah, the hidden numbers was a black film. Uh Taraji P. Henson was in it. Um there it's where the lady who could do the math, she was really good at math and, and she was working for yeah, NASA. Yep, yeah, and she's helping them get to the moon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, great movie. Um, in that movie, they started, they had cal they had people, calculators, right? Calculators would run the numbers. There was these ladies sit back there with the calculators and run the numbers. And all of a sudden, one day they rolled in this machine that was going to take their jobs. Remember yeah. that scene? And mm -hmm. they were, and one of the lead ladies was like, oh, no, it ain't. The problem they had was that people didn't know how to work the machine. Yeah. And so she brought her girls, these calculators. She started figuring out, she started reading the manual because the guys didn't read the manual. Yeah, and she went and read, read the manual and became a, um, what do they call, uh, engineer of the machine, a producer of the machine so she could write code, a coder and to be able to work the machine and nobody else could do it except for her. And she trained her girls and they all went from calculating to now calculating through this machine and becoming programmers. Right. All from reading the manual. And what was missed so much was that the opportunity was available and all they had to do is be human. Say, well, I'll, if I have to just learn a manual, well, then I'll go learn a manual 
and right. figure out this thing. And no one else could work it. The guys from IBM were there. They didn't know how to make it work. And she just read the manual and did a couple of things and became the programmer. And now her whole crew who would have lost their jobs, learned a new trade in the same industry and was able to work with the new technology because of it. And it was a beautiful story of, of the God given human will to learn and to develop and then to engage with friction and then to make something to become better. Right. Like it's just, there's some things you have to, not believe in order to restrict and say, no, you can't ever bring an IBM computer in here because these ladies would lose their jobs and we want black women to have jobs. Right. Right. Yes. Like, and, and instead bringing that machine in meant you, that these black women become engineers. Right. That's right. You yeah. just gave them because a boost. The ambition. Right. It's amazing. But, so then what does it do to industry to say, hey, I only had a high school education. These trucks came in. I figured out some things. And now I get paid as a guy who has, you know, three doctorates, whatever. It's, it's, all those possibilities are there. They're a reality for anybody who's willing to work. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I met a guy recently who he um, he uh, uh, lays he works. He, he prepares the dirt for people that are going to come in and lay asphalt. Right. And he's got this incredibly successful company. And um, he learned, he, he started as a guy who just ran a, a tractor and now he is running an entire crew of tractors. He doesn't even ever get into a tractor anymore. He runs an entire crew of people that drive tractors. And um, because he was ambitious and he, he just kept learning and kept being good at his job and kept working his way up. Um, that's, you know, my dad was a CPA and he was told, Hey, computers are going to take your job. And so he learned to program computers. And so now he's a CPA who said, not computers aren't going to take my job, my program that I built, it might take some other CPAs jobs. (laughs) Right. but, But that's just the, um, that's, that's not a bad, the, uh, pressure put pressure put on a man is good for him yeah that's how maturity comes i think one of the things that doug says men are like uh flatbed trucks the more weight they're on them the better they drive yep right yeah Um, and that's just the um and we i mean i've definitely seen that as you know as you get older and older and you see it, you know, you look back and you're like, you know, when I was young, wasn't married, had a part-time job, went to school, I wasted so much time and I was so much less um, who I was intended, God intended me to be because I just didn't have that much responsibility. The more responsibility God puts on a man, um, the more he becomes the person God intended him to be. And it's a, and it's a death and resurrection process, right? It's not like oh, the pressure is somehow good. It's the, I, this safe fell on my head and I was forced underground and then I was raised from the dead by the power of Holy Spirit. Um, and now he, I got the money that's in the safe, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's just, I, I, to say, I don't want to have to ever learn or grow. I want to just do this job the rest of my life. Um, that's not a Christian way to approach. Even if you love your job, you know, you meet a guy that just loves his job, um, driving truck. Um, you should be 
trying to get better at it and trying to figure out how to be more efficient um, and looking for ways to, there's other things besides our, where, how we produce that we can grow in, um, you know, there's other ways to grow in maturity, but we should always be looking to grow in our industry. And You know, and I think that part of it too, and, and this I'll end with this, but when you are really seeking to love your neighbor, I don't think you're going to be without work. I don't think you're going to be without industry. When you are seeking to say, what does my neighbor need? And how can I create that thing for them or give this value to them? I, I, the service industry is so huge right now. And I'll tell you something. People don't know how to give good service. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't know how to do it. It's one thing to make a restaurant where the food is good. That's enough of attraction. But have you thought about making a restaurant where people say, I'm having a bad day. I just want to sit down. Yeah. At Knox's and eat. I, I just want to go there because I need to be there. The people, yeah. I need the environment. I need the whole cult. I need that right now. Because in the food, the food is good. I like the food. The food's great. I love the food. Phenomenal food. But it's that place that I want to go to because it encourages me. I just need to be yeah. there. That's like that's, the, you know. It's it's the cigar shop mentality, right? The the if the owner if you come into a cigar shop and the owner of the cigar shop is waiting and he says, "Oh, you're new. Good to meet you. What do you do for a living?" Let right. me introduce you to this guy over here. He does the same thing, right? The the there's a reason that smoky back rooms have um are known as the place where deals are made, right? It's because those cigar shops are places where men go to be encouraged um, mm. to meet like other pubs. Men. Yeah. Like pubs. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the cigar shop that I go to, you just come in and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm working in the film and television. And the owner of the cigar shop says, Hey, well, you know who comes in here regularly? This guy that produces Mel Gibson's movies. I'll let, I'll introduce you. You, um, and then you end up you're just meeting this guy. Like this is, Random. Reminds me like so that's like the black barbershop that has the same it sort is. of like yeah you same, know same idea where it's like you you go there because men go there to hang out um and be encouraged by their and, barber particularly <laughs> yeah, right yeah so, you know, um so there's something magical about cigar shops when I was in New York end up with the one of the head head of head locations managers for New York in a cigar shop you know who are you gonna you don't there's something incredibly magical about cigar smoke smoke filled rooms <laughs> i don't i mean i don't have a good a, i don't i don't know how to explain it other than you go there and hang out and you and you find men to work with um yeah that's good stuff um is there is there a uh, a form of poetry that would be good to think through or work through in order to understand, have a better, I think one of the things that we have done in the conversations back and forth for myself that talking to you is to remove the, the shackles or the, the parameters, the, the guards in which I can thinking so that I don't think about the world in such a limited perspective anymore. I keep looking for the opportunity because I know the world is that kind of place. If you don't think the world is that kind of place, then you feel I have to fight for this because there's nothing else there. There's nothing else to go to. There's nothing else to build from, you know? Um, so I have to 
get mine. Yeah. Because that's all there is. And it's the zero sum game. If you take it, then I can't have anything. But I, I, I'm like, look, man, grass is green here. Grass is green there. I believe in God. <laughs> it works. Dirt works. We'll put seed in it yeah. and something's going to come out. And, but more and more, that mentality has been applied to other areas of, you know, our conversation, economics, you know, education, business. Um, so it, what the poetry has helped me think more robust about God's world. What's something that you think might be really good to kind of meditate on this week? Um, poetically. Well, I, I was planning on jumping into that John Dunn treasury. Um, so, uh, and John Dunn, um, one of the things that I really like about him is he um, has this, he's really good at the two look, seeing two meanings at once. Um, George Herbert is like this where, you know, you've got multiple meanings at once. Fascism wants to boil it down to economics. Mm. What a thing is, is has to do with its money-making ability or lack of ability. Right. So, um, so you, there's a reason that it's fascists that end up strip mining, right? Because all that a, um, That's a good. hill is, is something that either gives us gold and silver and minerals or doesn't. If it doesn't, um, why would we keep a hill there? Whereas we know as Christians that the mountains show forth the glory of God, that the trees clap their hands in praise of him, right? That, that a tree is not, um, doesn't become something useful when you cut it down. The beauty of it, the glory of it is all a part of its, uh, the usefulness of its nature, right? In the sense that it can direct us up towards God, you know, when you, you, when you're, um, and it gives shade. I mean, there's so many things, you know, it might give you, and the and Honey shade, sap, you know. shade is a is a picture of the eternal rest that we're heading towards in, in regularly in the Psalms, um, in the Book of Jonah. You know, um, so I you know like I love I watch a lot of whale videos. I find whales fascinating. I want to know uh, what they taste like. I would. I want to know what. I want to know what if you. <laughs> make cheese from whale milk i would be really curious i thought about that a lot how would you how would you get whale milk enough to try to make cheese out of it like wouldn't that be i want a grilled cheese sandwich with whale cheese anyway i know what to get jason for christmas (laughs) it's not available right or whale butter right i've found i've had butter from all kinds of animals i i you know all kinds of mammals but not never from whale so I'd love whale butter or, or oh, penguin. <laughs> we can't. They don't have. They don't produce. I know. I, right, so, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you've already thought about this. I know. I know. <laughs> oh. 